while achievable for many people, including many of us in this room today. For many others, the American dream remains an unattainable dream and an unfulfilled promise. Today, we will examine how the idea of the American dream has played out in Cleveland, starting with the displacement of indigenous people at the city's founding. While Cleveland's role in both the Underground Railroad and later the Great Migration held out hope for access to opportunity, that hope was often undermined by policies that shaped economic reality through the 20th century and up to the present day. And as we look toward the future of our city, we will dream together about the creation of opportunity across our diverse communities. To give us an in-depth look at the history, we are honored to be joined today by Dr. Regina Williams, the Distinguished Scholar of African-American History and Culture at the Western Reserve Historical Society. Her honors include Fulbright grants in both 2010 and 2019 to support teaching and research in Nigeria and South Africa. She currently serves as a research fellow for the Center for Gender and Africa Studies at South Africa's University of the Free State. She's the president of the African American Archives Auxiliary of the Western Reserve Historical Society and is the president of the Northeast Ohio chapter of the Fulbright Association. Immediately following Dr. Williams' opening remarks, Rick Jackson, senior host and producer at IdeaStream Public Media, will continue the conversation with our panelists. Joining us on stage for the panel conversation are Cynthia Connolly, Director of Programming at the City Club and Executive Board Member for the Lake Erie Native American Council. Michael Jeans, President and CEO at, of Growth Opportunity Partners. Marcia Moreno, Founder and President of Amore Consulting. And Karis Zhang, Vice President of Planning for Midtown Cleveland. If you have a question for our speaker or panelists, you can text it to 330-541-5794. You can also tweet your question at the City Club, and City Club staff will try to work it into the second half of the program. Members and friends of the City Club of Cleveland and of the Cleveland Orchestra, please join me in welcoming Dr. Williams. Good afternoon, everyone. And thank you so very much for coming out this afternoon. It has been an incredibly busy week, and everything was excellent. Everything that I was able to take advantage of at the Severance Hall and also at the Western Reserve Historical Society where we had our own partnership program. But I certainly want to thank the Cleveland Orchestra and its president and CEO for their generosity, for being the visionary leaders that we expect them to be here in the city of Cleveland. Everybody says they're the best band in the land. I believe it. I was at the opera this week. And the singers are pretty amazing too. 
Um, I also want to acknowledge my president and CEO at the Western Reserve Historical Society, Kelly Falcone Hall, who pretty much supports everything that I do, so I try to do things in an excellent way, but I'm not perfect. That's why we have discussion periods. So if you have questions or concerns, by all means, please call those things to our attention during that period when we have the Q&A. And thanks also to the City Club for always doing amazing things to call important issues to our attention that is here on America's North Coast. And certainly, again, to all of you, thanks for being part of this great celebration of opera and humanities. I um, want to practice using my clicker here. There we go. It's um, pretty easy to have an amazing course if you can begin the course with an amazing text. And I think this publication has been distributed at every one of the programs that I've attended is just incredible. And it provides a great overview. I'll have to say it's uh, more in depth, I think, than what I'm going to share with you this afternoon because I have about 15 minutes. Right? I'm sure it took the curator more than 15 minutes to put that together. But I'm thinking of this publication on the American Dream as our primary text. And uh, I would love to do those one hour lectures that I did for 23 years at Cleveland State University, but I won't do that, right? Because Mr. Jackson will give me that look. Right, and somebody will ring the bell and I'll have to move on. But for the, uh, the next 15 minutes or so, I wanna talk a lot about some of those ideas that are actually in this text. And uh, I'm sure just about everybody in the room has one if you've attended any of the events this week. But certainly we want to begin um, the discussion with this land acknowledgement. This particular one was put together by the Social Justice Institute at Case Western Reserve University, my alma mater for the PhD in history. And it reads as follows in its entirety. In recognizing the land upon which we reside, we express our gratitude and appreciation to those who lived and worked be here before us, those whose stewardship and resilient spirit makes our residence possible on this traditional homeland of the Lenape, Delaware, Shawnee, Wyandotte, Miami, Ottawa, Potawatomi, and other Great Lakes tribes, including Chippewa, Kickapoo, Wea, Pia Kinshaw, and Kakashia. And please forgive me if I mispronounced anything, um, I'm doing my best. We also acknowledge the thousands of Native Americans who now call Northeast Ohio home. And again, from Case Western Reserve University and uh, the greater Cleveland area, we occupy land officially ceded by 1,100 chiefs and warriors signing the Treaty of Greenville in 1795. So that's something that happened just before Cleveland came into its own as a community having been established in 1796. The other thing that I, I wanna do right now is tell a story. I wanna start with what I think is a very powerful story, and it's related to uh, two amazing people that I met at the Western Reserve Historical Society in our research library on Friday afternoon. Um, and it's a gentleman who's standing near Dr. Richard Jones and his late mother, Dr. Wilhelmina Manns, who was one of my colleagues at Cleveland State University for many times, uh, for many years, I should say. She was a tenured faculty member in the College of Education at Cleveland State. But I wanted to start by um, talking about Dr. Jones, who was the son of Dr. Manns, 
because he was quite an amazing person. I'm sure there's more than a few people in the room who will recognize him and know of his great work in um, human services here in the city of Cleveland. But 42 years ago, I met him for the first time and uh, at a public presentation. I went there as the guest of Marjorie Witt Johnson. Anybody remember her? Uh, the founder of the Caramel Dancers, daughter of a Buffalo soldier. But she was a great woman and a member of Alpha Kappa Alpha Sorority Incorporated. When the sorors hear that, they'll smile, right? But I'm not a member of that sorority. But she took me there and she said, uh, Regina, I want you to meet Dr. Richard Jones because you, know, you can get a PhD just like Dr. Richard Jones. I said, Marjorie, I'm on a 10-year plan here trying to get a bachelor's degree. I just can't imagine that I'll ever have a PhD. But one of the things he said when he got to the podium was that wherever he went, he took his friends with him. And then he pointed to a table in the back of the room that was filled with books. And he said, um, my best friends are back there at that table. Please introduce yourselves to my friends before you leave. And there was one book that caught my eye immediately. The title of it was Their Eyes Were Watching God by Zora Neale Hurston. And for 42 years, I've been addicted to Zora Neale Hurston and all of the wonderful stories that are told about her and her work with Langston Hughes and an interesting encounter, let's say it that way, that they had at Caramel House here in Cleveland. But I say that to say this, and I love this picture with all the books in the background, that books can change lives. And I believe that this publication for the inaugural Opera and Humanities Festival is going to make a world of difference for at least the next five years, I think, right? for those individuals who pair the performing arts with the humanities and feel right at home in Severance Hall and also in the research library. So I wanted to acknowledge the two of them and um, the kind of work that they've been doing as educators and change agents here in the city of Cleveland before we proceed. I also want to, um, because I'm looking forward to the 250th anniversary of the birthing of this nation in 2026, recognize that uh, those of us here in Greater Cleveland have access to amazing libraries. And I'm very proud of the fact that the Cleveland Public Library has this Ohio Center for the book and also that we're in the midst, almost to the midpoint now, of this amazing Cleveland Reads initiative. And thank you again to Cleveland Orchestra for encouraging us to read, or in my case, reread, The Warmth of Other Suns by Isabel Wilkerson. And um, it's interesting to look at that book, and now hindsight, of course, is 2020, to realize how much time she spent talking about cast. I just wasn't conscious of it the first time I read it. That was probably 2011, but uh, in listening to her speak at Severance Hall just a week ago and talking about the place of Cleveland in the history of the great black migration, usually from the rural South to cities in the North, in the East, and also on the West Coast, I, um, I agree with her. And I think that's a good thing. She's a brilliant writer. I agree with her that Cleveland had a special place in that history and certainly a special place in the lives of my black relatives and black friends whose ancestors migrated to this part of the country. So thank you to the libraries who keep calling those great ideas to our attention. 
I also want to say something about a primary document that we all have access to, certainly if we can access the internet and, um, and make our way to some of those books that focus on Ohio's history and the history of this nation. With this Northwest Ordinance of 1787 and the Land Ordinance of 1785, we get a federal policy uh, related to education, certainly, and diversity, and some revolutionary language about slavery and freedom, and the fact that they didn't want slavery in this part of the country. But I like this part as an educator because, again, it suggests religion, morality, and knowledge being necessary to good government and the happiness of mankind, schools and the means of education shall forever be encouraged. And even uh, came up with a way for selling land in the townships that would subsidize the public school system in this part of the country. That was a good thing. It also called to the attention of anybody who was interested in federal policy in 1787 that there should be this treaty-based system for working with the indigenous people that we should be able to agree with them peaceably about how we would coexist in this part of the world. We didn't always live up to the promises, okay, of uh, those revolutionary statements that were included in those documents, but I think they were a good idea. And so we're still striving to live up to what our founding fathers, if you will, proposed to do in 1785 and in 1787. I also want to uh, take a look at this, um, because again, when Ohio entered the United States in, um, <clears throat> as a free state in the first decade of the 19th century, it suggested that neither slavery nor involuntary servitude would exist here. And that got interesting after a while too, right? Because we're gonna have a civil war that'll continue through 1865. But race in this place called Ohio, and certainly in the city of Cleveland, is something that we are still grappling with and institutionalized racism certainly continues to challenge us. But I love this young man here who graduated from Central High School in the city of Cleveland in the decade of the 1920s, because he's always talking about dreams, including the American dream, and talks a lot about being the darker brother. And so he is the poet laureate for many years of the Negro people. This is James Mercer Langston Hughes, of course, was born in Joplin, Missouri, but did a lot of migrating and finally settled in the city of Cleveland during his high school years. But this poem, I won't recite the whole thing, but I too sing America, I am the darker brother. And so we're aware that challenges are there, not just for the indigenous people, but also for black Americans. Um, most of whom were living in slavery in the American South when Ohio becomes a state in 1803. But this idea of race and the matter of religion, getting back to that language of the Northwest Ordinance, uh, suggesting that it's necessary and good for schools to encourage the study of religion, that got interesting too. Because then you had to answer the question, whose religion and how much study? It certainly wasn't the spiritual traditions of the indigenous people in this part of the world. But still, uh, black Americans, Jewish Americans have continued to talk about their place uh, and finding it in the American sun and, um, again, making a place for themselves in this country, not to uh, immigrate to another country, but, again, claiming a place here on the American soil. And, of course, this amazing book, 
The Warmth of Other Suns, written by Isabel Wilkerson, published, I believe, initially in 2010, tells us a lot about that great migration. And I want to talk a little bit more about that, um, because again, it's, there are lots of groups moving here and there during this migration period in the 20th century. But the one that she focuses on, of course, is for African Americans. And I warned everybody on the panel, I'm the African Americanist. I don't claim any special knowledge about Asian American history or Native American history, but here I am. We can't escape comparing our experiences to the experiences of other people and trying to grapple with the promises of freedom and the American dream. So here I go with uh, this 20th century great migration. Most times we don't even have to say black, because people know what we're talking about but it's one of the largest internal population movements. Yes, there were millions of people coming from Europe still, at least through the era of the Great War and world, we call it now World War I, right? We didn't know there was gonna be a second one in the 20th century, but it was a great war, a, world, a war to make the world safe for democracy. But again, this black migration was especially, I guess, noteworthy because it changed the complexion of a lot of cities in the United States. And so we look at the census year of 1920 and then look at the population figures again for black people in 1930, there's about a million more black people in urban areas than there were there in 1920. And then we also notice for the first time since this year 1920 that um, the nation is more urban than rural. So it's not just black people going to cities. Uh, the cities are the places to be because that's where the jobs and other opportunities are concentrated. It lasts from about 1915 to 1970 as discussed in Wilkerson's book. And again, usually from the rural South to cities all over the country. And why would people do this? Why would people leave everything that was familiar to them? I like what Isabel Wilkerson said, she says, all of our ancestors did this, or almost all of our ancestors, those of us who were at Severance Hall during that presentation, because they wanted something better. And they talk about the push-pull factors, racism, certainly political and economic disfranchisement, all of those things, pushing black people out of the South. And then the promise of year-round education that wasn't related to the growing season, better jobs, higher paying jobs, um, nicer housing in the North, all of those things serve to pull black people away from the familiar, sometimes into the unknown, and many people were transformed in the process. How many people? About six million of them before the migration ended in the 1970s. But what did that do for the city of Cleveland? Population of black people was very, very small in 1803 when Ohio became a state. But by 1930, there were 72,000 African Americans in the city of Cleveland. And then as of 2021, just between the major census years, um, we estimate that there were about 367,991 African Americans in this city of ours. And uh, in the majority, minority city, that's about 47% now African American. Again, those are estimates, but uh, it made a difference, certainly, for those individuals who were studying race, and especially the sociologists were making note of those changes. Now, it, this is when it gets personal, right? My family was one of those individual families involved in this great black migration. These are my parents, Nathaniel and Lanzarine Williams, 
who were uh, natives of little rural towns in Arkansas, and I'm always amazed when they even named them on the maps, but they were both from Arkansas. They came here after um, the Korean conflict. My father was an army veteran. Uh, my mother just needed to get out of Arkansas, right? And she came with several of her siblings. But they met and married here in Cleveland in 1955, and then by 1960, our family looked like this. And then we added three more. So by the end of the decade of the 1960s, there were six of us. Interesting people, uh, staunch members of the Baptist Church, maybe we can say pillars of the Missionary Baptist Church in Arkansas, and also charter members of the New Joshua Missionary Baptist Church. I'm going to look at Jeremy when I say Baptist Church. Jeremy, uh, New Joshua Missionary Baptist Church in Cleveland, Ohio, in the Cedar Central area that a lot of black people chose to make their homes. But again, they were there. The church is still standing. My sisters are still involved in music ministry there. Uh, Daddy sang tenor, and Mommy sang soprano, right? And, and me and my sisters, all five girls and my one little brother, that's the baby in, in the arms of my mother there, we would join right in. And so much so that we got this group together called the Williams Family Gospel Singers, and look at us at Severance Hall in 2011. Uh, again, the best band in the land, uh, home of the most, uh, well, we should say the most beautiful concert hall. I think I've heard that too and read it a couple of times too. And I just can't stop looking at it even when I'm listening to the beautiful music. But that's Jennifer Hall who is standing next to me with a different color hair, right? <laughs> but uh, I'm sorry, I said Jennifer Holiday. I think I said Jennifer Hall before, but Jennifer Holiday is the one who was there with us. And the orchestra put together this Colors of Christmas concert. And, uh, and it wasn't just the music of Western Europe. A lot of it was gospel music. Ben Vereen was there dancing and singing all over the stage, but certainly Jennifer Holliday, a great gospel artist. And I like that particular moment in our family history because it suggests to me that um, whoever was making the decisions about what concerts would be presented on that stage in the uh, Advent season of 2011 realized that there were great musics if you will, coming from various groups here in the United States, and, uh, and some of them would ultimately trace their ancestry to West Africa rather than Western Europe. And, um, and in closing, there are so many things that we can say about the struggles to find the American dream and to, uh, to make good on this promise of freedom. There was a historian many years ago named Frederick Jackson Turner who talked about this frontier thesis in American history and what was it that um, accounted for this American experience and the assertive behavior on Americans who were always trying to push back the frontier and tame the wilderness? Well, he was uh, ultimately uh, revised. That's what happens to revisionist historians, right? They get revised. And a lot of people are glad about that because in taming the wilderness and pushing back the frontier, what ended up happening with a lot of groups who were not white and did not trace their ancestry to Western Europe is that they were either forced to assimilate or their cultures were annihilated. And that isn't a good thing, especially if you're a member of one of the indigenous groups that were here before 
Columbus came. But nevertheless, with those struggles, um, we are all here together in all of our marvelous diversity. And so here's what I'd like to close with in talking about uh, my experiences as an African-American and quoting the words of this great writer who's pictured here, Maya Angelou. You may write me down in history with your bitter twisted lies. You may trod me in the very dirt, but still, like dust, I'll rise. Does my sassiness upset you? Why are you beset with gloom? Because I walk like I have oil wells pumping in my living room, just like moons and like suns with the certainty of tides, just like hope springing high, still I'll rise. Did you want to see me broken, bowed head and lowered eyes, shoulders falling down like teardrops, weakened by my soulful cries? Does my haughtiness offend you? Don't you take it awful hard because I laugh like I've got gold mines digging in my own backyard. You may shoot me with your words. You may cut me with your eyes. You may kill me with your hatefulness, but still, like air, I'll rise. Does my sexiness upset you? Does it come as a surprise that I dance like I've got diamonds at the meeting of my thighs? Out of the huts of history's shame, I rise. Up from a past as rooted in pain, I rise. I'm a black ocean leaping and wide, welling and swelling, I bear in the tide. Leaving behind nights of terror and fear, I rise. Into a daybreak that's wondrously clear, I rise. Bringing the gifts that my ancestors gave. I am the dream and the hope of the slave. I rise, I rise, I rise. Thank you. I'll be seated now. <laughs> Can I sit next to you? We spend these next few minutes discussing the dream. Think about how it translates to you, your parents, your grandparents, perhaps generations previous to that, when they came to America, when they struck out to make successes of themselves in this vast nation of so much opportunity, but so much difficulty. Here to discuss the American dream, one of the most diverse panels we could have created, Symphony Colony. Co Connolly. <laughs> she was joking about how people mispronounce her name earlier. I jinxed you, I'm so sorry. <laughs> Cynthia is with the City Club and the Lake Erie Native American Council. I've known her for years, so sorry. <laughs> Michael Jeans of Growth Opportunity Partners, Marcia Moreno of Amor Consulting, Kara Singh of Midtown Cleveland, and of course joining us, Dr. Regina Williams of the Western Reserve Historical Society. Help me welcome them all. <laughs> Cynthia, as the first people here, let's discuss what happened so long ago. You've explained that for indigenous people in Northeast Ohio, the struggle to find identity continues even to this very day. But please take us back to the first native people who returned to Cleveland, essentially forced to come back here from reservations where earlier government edicts had relocated them under the guise of treaties, of course. What was the concept then of an American dream? Yeah, well, so I mean, when I think of the American dream, I mean, I think of several core values, right? I think of uh, prosperity, equity, um, a governing structure that uh, supports everybody. 
I think of the ability to make decisions and make the next generation stronger and better than the one before. Um, and those are all things that were very central to our culture and our form of governance for indigenous people. Um, we had the American dream, those values that we consider the American dream. We had that for tens of thousands of years here on these lands. It was disrupted and very recently disrupted when we think about how long our history is here versus um, where we were since uh, the start of colonization. And um, from that period, about 500 years of just completely like opposite policies that um, targeted our identity and who we are as a people, our power to define ourselves, to control our image, it often flip-flopped those, those federal policies. And they were, they were very intentional at either removing us, uh, total genocide, or assimilation. And we see this happen over a period of 500 years. And there's a bunch of scholarship you can look at about these, these different eras of federal policy. But there's one specific era of federal policy that directly impacts Cleveland. And when um, I moved here, everyone's like, why are there no tribes here? I'm like, I think you can, you know, there's probably a reason why there are no tribes here. Can you think of one, <laughs> right? And it, it, was, it was removal, and it was genocide. And um, during the 1950s to the 1970s, um, there was this era called the termination era. And it was an era where federal policy directly targeted native tribes to kind of work them into mainstream societies. So for, again, for hundreds of years, their, their idea of what, um, how to deal with the quote unquote Indian problem um, was either genocide assimilation or removal. And this was assimilation. There was eight cities in the United States that were targeted as destination cities to move Native American families from the reservation. And again, they were very prosperous Native tribes until they were moved into the reservation, until about 1880 um, during the Dawes Act, where they plotted out this land and gave it away to settlers and pushed us onto the reservations. That's when we started to see deep poverty, like really true deep poverty. And then they realized, well, maybe if we just make them into everybody else, then we won't have to deal with the poverty on the res, right? We won't have to deal with the Indians anymore if they're just like us. And so we ended up moving. Um, they, there was an actual federal policy and program that literally bused Native Americans from reservations to eight select cities. Cleveland was one of those cities, and it was chosen specifically because there were tribes in the state. It's distance from um, tribal communities. And they actually called it recidivism when Native uh, participants went back to the res because their goal was to keep us here and to incorporate us into mainstream society. We're now in about the fourth generation since that program. Um, it's a double-edged sword. It really it was the advent of a lot of um, uh, pan-Indian identity um, and also realization that, you know, this is the first time a lot of tribal uh, communities were seeing other people from other tribes and be like, oh wait, you're experiencing that too? Yeah, so are we, like what's up with that? And that's when you've seen like American Indian movement, a lot of these civil rights um, um, programs um, and uh, movements launch up. And we're now here today um, in what, a year and a half out since the Cleveland baseball team name change. And I can tell you in my, my leadership role in this community, this is the first time in our entire time being here since the start of relocation, since we really, you know, a lot of natives have uh, returned to Cleveland that we've had the ability to control our identity and our image. We have not had that ability, period, um, for generations in this city. And in this year and a half since we started that, uh, since the name change, a lot of opportunities have opened up for our community in ways that we have not seen for decades. And so I think that is a proof in the, of, of how imagery and identity can really control um, how a group of people are able to achieve that American dream. Thank you.
Michael James, we heard from Isabel Alkerson <laughs> last week, and I hope you were all able to see that, about America pre-1796, what this place was, the dream of what it could become. Dr. Williams painted part of that picture again today of northward migration, even before the phrase American dream came into our lexicon. Talk to us about what people found when they arrived, largely from the South. Life for African Americans certainly was not the American dream as it was envisioned. Absolutely, and, and thank you for that question. Um, you know, this notion of American a dream, I think, was well described uh, just a moment ago by Cynthia. Uh, you know, there were, there were uh, images and uh, pictures and thoughts and a bit of an indoctrination on what an American dream would be, but I struggle, I struggle intensely on this notion of American uh, dream. And I, I struggle for a number of reasons. Uh, and one, I'm, I'm going to do a 30,000-foot flyby because my colleague Marcia is going to drill down on it. But the Americas, you know, extend from the north of Canada to the south of South America. And uh, this country has a long history of co-opting things that belong to others. And so the bit of arrogance to call this America I think is a good starting point, as we're the United States, but the Americas span far greater, far more broad. Uh, secondly, we should all issue great caution when prescribing and dictating what someone else's dream should be. And so when you put these together, I have immense struggle in what an American dream should be uh, and whether it should be pursued. And so you, you read in uh, the, the booklet that was provided a bit of history in, in, in 1931 and some early usage of this. Uh, but we found that, that the, the, the phrase was actually used before 1931. In 1899, a doc out of Vermont uh, built a, a lavish home. I think it was on 4,000 acres and 60 rooms. And uh, the media picked it up, press picked it up, and it wasn't well received. It was tagged to be, and I wrote this down so I wouldn't forget, it was tagged to be an utterly, I'm sorry, an utterly un-American dream. Because the early impetus for this American dream was about democracy. It was about uh, things that were not material. But over time, it would be redefined. And it would be redefined as a pursuit of things. And I'm going to pass by that too. Um, the following year, the New York Post declared that the greatest risk to every republic was discontented millionaires. This starts to ring familiar, <laughs> right? From the busing scenarios you shared to the busing that African Americans experienced, we're seeing old playbooks replayed, pages taken out and reused by the same cast of characters. And, and so I'll, I'll end with, you know, what, what did we find? America has a long history of floating red herrings, right? Um, and then operating in an opposite manner. And we've got to recognize this and call it out for what it is, a declaration of independence that was uh, bold in declaring inalienable rights, right? Life, liberty, pursuit of happiness. But it would be followed by deed restrictions be followed by burning and bombing of prominent black communities like Tulsa and like Redwood and 56 others. So are these rights essentially granted? My question is if there is a thing called uh, the American dream, then who owns it? 
and who has the authority to dole it out. There's a First Amendment that's to protect free speech, assembly, and peaceful protest. But January 6th was treated starkly different than Black Lives Matter. And so is there a freedom and a liberty in the pursuit of such things? The Second Amendment allegedly gives us all the right to bear arms, but right here in Cleveland in May of 2022, an African-American male, Antoine was his first name, he, he after being fatigued in the violence that was plaguing his neighborhood, he, he took on his right to bear arms, only to be arrested for bearing arms and for inciting some kind of unrest in his community. And so I struggle with what this American dream is and who owns it. Lastly, I'll say free markets and capitalism, they've, they've been capped with redlining. They've been capped with someone telling people who look like me where we can live, where we can play, where we can loiter. We had to fight to play in the ocean. Whose ocean is it to give? We were arrested for taking our kids to the lake. And I guess as I think about this, I'll share as Dr. Williams did, I'm sharing the black experience. I guess what fatigues me even greater is that experience continues to persist for natives, for Latinos, and for Asian Americans. And King highlighted that this would be a flaw for us. This would be a challenge, that if we permit these inequities, these injustices for one group that will all suffer. I'll close with uh, this, this country has a long way to go before it achieves greatness because we have to see each other as brothers and sisters. And until that happens, we're going to keep toggling this baton back and forth. We can't outrun the natives, can't outrun blacks, can't outrun Latinos, and we can't outrun Asians and others. So we didn't, we didn't migrate into the fullness of what was promised coming from the South. And in some ways, we're still looking for it. Thank you. In the program for the fest. He, he said he was closing, but I'm going to go back to him later. <laughs> In the program for the festival, we see Cuneo Harris' piece that tells us the idea of the American dream, the aspiration for social improvement and upward social mobility attained through individual hard work turns out to be resilient and adaptable. Dr. Williams, is it still that way, resilient and adaptable? I'd love to say that it is because um, we hear phrases like, and they don't really make sense when you go to places like China and you see that there's so much diversity in that part of Asia. But phrases like the model minority, and, and very often they're talking about Asian students mm -hmm at places like Harvard and Yale and how they outperform almost everybody else, including black males and challenges to affirmative action related to those uh, high achieving Asian American students. I, um, I think it is adaptable, right? The, the stereotypes that are applied to certain groups in the society, um, very often they were negative stereotypes when we talk about African Americans coming from the South, uh, regardless of the level of educational attainment, always looked upon as being less than, very often uh, earning less money. Teachers especially in the segregated schools of the pre-civil rights era um, earning sometimes half of what their white counterparts were earning in the American South. So I do believe that it is adaptable. Um, groups, I see other groups be 
beyond the African-American community demonized for being, or they are othered, if I can say that. They don't appear to be American enough, if we can say it that way. And so again, we're in the 21st century, but I think we are reliving not the American dream, but the nightmares of the first half of the 20th century. When we look at the experiences of people of color, especially in non-English speaking groups in the society. Terry Singh was nodding her head. For Asian people, the first American dream out west, people came there from the far east because of the gold rush. The dream wasn't realized. AAPI people were set upon. Many elected to move east, Ohio being just one of those destinations. Celebration of culture they imported had to be hidden at times. But the dream of an American Chinatown, or Asia town here in Cleveland as we called it, sprouted regardless, but with a lot of difficulty. for um, bringing up, I think, with the model minority method, and to your question too, Rick, I think um, we create these, um, we create these images, but we forget that, um, you know, for folks who are coming to the States to be students, they're accepted, right? And so we create this model minority myth that's based on this selection criteria that has been created, and then, and then we create this larger stereotype of this is an entire race of people and how they are to look or behave or to be. And um, I think, you know, when we think about, when I think about Asiatown and Chinatown here in Cleveland, um, so the history of Chinatowns is actually um, similarly created out of necessity. So um, a lot of um, our Chinese um, uh, folks who maybe in all over the United States, whether on the West Coast or here in Cleveland, weren't allowed to live in most places. Um, Michael talked about deed restrictions. I think similarly in San Francisco and the Chinatown there, all these neighborhoods were created because um, Chinese people weren't allowed to live or to work or to even go to the hospital at um, the white institutions, and so they created their own. And so these neighborhoods rose out of the necessity of creating our own communities. Um, even uh, family associations um, were raised in this style of mutual aid to support one another, to help each other um, find housing or to learn English or to find jobs. And so um, in Cleveland, something that really strikes me is that first Chinatown was actually right next to Public Square um, and was moved, was displaced for the building of a federal building. And so I think a lot of times we talk about um, Chinatowns as disappearing or as, um, as kind of dissipating, but in reality often displaced for um, highways or for um, federal projects. And uh, in Cleveland, we see that as the case too. Um, many of you, I think, will recognize Rockwell Avenue as kind of we think of the historic Chinatown and thinking about the separation from where we see Asiatown today and its growth and its development a little bit east of there and how, um, you know, I think that disconnection is part of that, is by design um, of uh, hemming in. I think um, some people, I'm not sure, some people might have seen even today, um, actually in Philadelphia, the, the I, I was in Philadelphia's Chinatown for a little bit, and so it's close to my heart. Um, but actively right now, that Chinatown is fighting against um, the development of a, a basketball arena um, right on the uh, boundaries of the neighborhood, and so further hemming in and displacement of these communities. And so today in Asiatown, I think we see um, 
a, a fight to say we are here, that um, the history has been to be made invisible, to be shaped as a model minority, or um, I know growing up here, I was often told, well, you're not really Asian, like you're basically white. Um, because of this picture that we have created of what it means to be Asian, and um, really this flattened image. And so I think, um, at, in my work at Midtown Cleveland in community development, something that we've shaped for Asiatown with the community, we heard a lot of this desire of being, desire to be seen, to be recognized, and to be able to have a place to feel um, belonging and celebration. And so there's this um, kind of vision of saying we're growing home and we're collectively creating the space here that can be our home where we can feel a place of belonging, of celebration, where our identity can be uplifted in many different ways that that can look. Um, Asia is a very large place and um, many different cultures in that that can be celebrated. Thank you. Marcia Moreno. <laughs> they really like you. <laughs> Marcia, the dream for the Latino community, still also very much a work in progress. Unlike some of the other backstories we hear though, most of this community did not flee here, was not displaced here, but chose to come here, to resettle. Very different kind of an American dream. Yes, and I um, relate to so many of, of, of the stories and what we're talking about today. I, I guess I want to make sure that my disclaimer is that, yeah, there might have been some displacement because one of the biggest issues of the Latino community is that we are just bottled and labeled under this umbrella of Latino. Uh, when we're so many different countries and territories, and I think that's part of what it's hard to deal with us in a way, because we come here and suddenly we become Latinos. That's not even a word that we use to identify ourselves when we live in our countries, but here we are, right, in the country that loves putting us in a box and categorizing everything. So. Um, I guess what I wanted to say about that, I, I, I'm sure that there are other groups that have been displaced that can self-identify as Latinos. My perspective and my, my part of the story and the reason why I do the work I do with my consulting is because many of us have chosen to come here uh, for various reasons. And the American dream, well, first of all, I'm an American too because I live, I live in Chile, right? So that was my first argument with my husband that, okay, what do you mean you're American? I am an American too. Um, and it was, you know, an interesting a starting conversation for dating, I guess. <laughs> but um, so the American dream, it's, you know, it's a slightly different, I guess. I came here as a student of my master's degree. I got a scholarship. I never intended to stay here. I came to study like many of us. Like I see someone now saying nodding as well. We came to do something specific. We have our plants back home. We had our families. And then something happened. In my case, I met my husband. <laughs> and sadly, that made it, I made the choice that I was going to stay here and I was going to become, I guess, an American. <laughs> um, so. I guess what I'm trying to say is that it's very easy to simplify as what you were saying around, you know, what we are and the stereotypes of, you know, the Latinos and simplifying and looking at the things that you see on TV or the politician tells about the stories of who we are, especially around Latinos and people from Latin America. Everything you hear is about what we don't have. 
everything we don't have in our country, so we're coming desperately here. Yes, that is true, and we still are grappling with a lot of that, but many of us, and again, this is part of why I'm so inclined to, to change the narrative around who we are here in the city, so many of us <laughs> had our wonderful lives <laughs> back in our countries, and we came here to take advantage of an opportunity, and we made it home here, and we're thankful for the opportunities, but that doesn't mean that this is the end of all. <laughs> I'm very critical of the city. The city, I made it my home and I'm raising my family and my wonderful 10-year-old boy, but it needs to do a lot of work to make it inclusive for all of us. Um, so it's, it's, it's the American dream, I guess, to me, would be to really be understood and welcome as I am, feel visible, feel included, feel like I can be my own Chilean, 100% person, um, mixed with my husband, who is 100% Rocky Riverian, <laughs> uh, with, you know, who is going to, with a wonderful 10-year-old boy who is a mix of both of us, and actually who is going to become the workforce of this country and the future of this country, as Latinos are one of the fastest growing groups. So, I don't know, that is what to me American dream means. Let's stay with this, the intentionality of immigration. There are so many people who want to come here, but our faults are laid bare. Karis, do you see people still wanting to come to America given what we now see it as? Um, yeah, well, yes, absolutely. <laughs> um, I think, yeah, I resonate a lot. Um, with what you just shared, I, my own family, I think, came for my, I actually just learned this history recently. My grandmother shared that she moved to the United States from the Philippines with my, with my mom and her siblings because she saw this opportunity. She wanted her kids to grow up with this education. And I do think that dis, despite it all, it, there is a lot of opportunity here. There are certainly people who want to move here. Um, but like Marcia said, it, we need to do better. We need to make um, this place a place that we can all create these spaces of belonging, of connection, of welcome um, for people, whether they've been here for generations and uh, centuries or moving here as newcomers. Dr. Williams, do you see this for folks offshore? Is there still reason to come here? Absolutely, and thank you for giving me an opportunity to talk about changes in immigration law in 1965 because we get many, many more people after that year coming from Africa and Latin America, uh, other parts of the Americas, if I can say it that way, because there were restrictions, especially, well, beginning in the early 20th century for people who were coming from the wrong part of Europe, you know, the great European immigration from southwestern parts of Europe, you know, the doors of opportunity were closed in the faces of those individuals during the era that we now refer to as World War I. But so many more African-born people coming after 1965 from many, many different African nations, more than 50, right? But a lot from Nigeria. And then they come here and they're black, they're African-American, they're no longer Yoruba or Fulani or any of the other great ethnic groups that we find with all of the rich languages and religious traditions in West Africa, many of them right there in Nigeria, the largest republic in that part of West Africa. And so there, there's an incredible kind of diversity that we find 
among Africans of the soil once they immigrate to the United States. And I think that's something that we're also grappling with as American peoples, um, understanding that not everybody who looks like me, for example, they usually don't talk this way. This is a Cleveland accent, right? <laughs> but but there, there's Yoruba English. I mean, it's a field of study in Nigeria. But, um, and to look down on those people who want to retain their culture and be American, not that they're anti-Black, but they're pro-Yoruba or they're pro-Nigerian American. So it's, uh, it gets increasingly, I think, complex when we um, really look at diversity and really try to convince ourselves that we want to make this a place that's hospitable to all people who come here. Michael, talk to me about Dream Deferred. Not far from where we are right now, the area of Chester and 105, Euclid 105, used to be a vibrant black community, pretty much gone now. The idea of displacement, even after you've been displaced. Hmm. Yeah, so for the next 60 minutes, we'll talk about that. <laughs> I, you know, I, I'll start with, I, I have the, the, the treasured honor of chairing the board for Caramu House, which is located at 89th and Quincy. And I'd have a very difficult time uh, of describing that community other than beautiful. I think sometimes we forget, and I appreciate you teeing it up this way, Rick. I think sometimes we forget that in place and in structures, there are people, right? And, and what happens to people can instigate something and catalyze something, but we forget the intrinsic beauty that has always been there. And if for some reason it's perceived otherwise, it's because of what someone else has done to what should be an absolute, right? As an Aristotelian perspective, something that's absolute that can't at its core be changed from what it ultimately is. And so when I think of that community, I think of a place of beauty. What has happened to that community has been intentional disinvestment. And frankly, Dr. Williams, you, you touched on this in such an eloquent way. Um, one of the greatest challenges this country has is that uh, during the, say, immigration law changes, there was this floodgate of immigrants who came to the United States, none under a pretense of not being able to be themselves when they got here. And so if you can't come from another place, either voluntary or otherwise, and be the embodiment of the history of your people and the hope for the future of your people in a place, then, the, then it all starts to fall apart. And so whether that's Quincy or Huff or Central or, or, or Payne Avenue, pick your place in, this, in the city or across the country, that's what's getting in our way. Uh, the, the, the notion of assimilation, uh, you know, I think is, is quite frankly the fuel of the dream being deferred. I would say that uh, those, who those who fill this room and who are listening to this conversation, while we have been, and forgive me for speaking for a, a broader group, but to, in some ways, uh, while we've been affected by the facts and realities that aren't always alternate, uh, we still have a hope and an optimism. And it's that optimism that I think keeps America going. Uh, frankly, if we didn't have it, I think this would be the, among the bitterest of pills or the most bitter pills to, to swallow. So uh, a dream deferred, um, I, I, I would maybe even go so far as to say when I'm in, um, 
communities and neighborhoods that have been dis uh, disinvested in or underinvested in over a long period of time, I don't know that those children have the liberty to even dream. I talked to a couple of young, I talked to a lot, I talked to 60 kids, 65 kids in Cleveland Public Schools yesterday, but, but one of our former interns would share with me that she would wake up seven to 10 times a night to ensure that her doors were still closed and the windows were still locked. How can you dream when you're forced to survive? And so the notion of even a dream and the ability to have the freedom to have it, uh, I think is far different than even having a dream and that dream being deferred. So where Hughes was in a dream deferred, unfortunately, we perhaps have slid backwards. Uh, and if this country is going to advance forward, we have to redirect our propensity for sliding backwards. Cynthia, you spoke earlier. You spoke earlier about being seen, being recognized. Is it aspirational enough just to be included? Oh, no, <laughs> that is not enough. Um, so I think, you know, so everyone was talking here and it really brought me back to like this really contradictory thing that, you know, we talk about identity and imagery and being seen. There is nothing more American, like the American icon, than a Native American. If you look back at some of the historical documents and maps, Native imagery encircles the whole thing. There's a reason why the people who were in the Boston Tea Party dressed up as, as Native people as they dumped the tea over the side of the, the boat. Because what does the US have that Britain doesn't? Us. It is the quintessential American icon, but at the same time as we're clinging to this American icon of a Native American, we were not allowed to be Native American. And our identity of who we are actually was erased. And we see this manifesting in a lot of different ways through things like mascots, through things like how we're portrayed in film and media. The fact that 87% of schools in this country today do not cover Native American history after the year 1900. We're, we're gone. We do not show up again in 87% of curriculum after the year 1900, 87% of schools. So we have a whole generation of folks where what they learn is whatever they see in the media, whatever they see in TV or in their sports stadiums. And again, we never had that power to control that identity or redefine ourselves or push ourselves out there because um, it, was, it was held by somebody else. And at, we were actually told not to be that for hundreds of years through targeted federal policy. And so here we are today, right? And I was actually asked by a good friend of mine, Will Tarter, who works for the Center for Community Solutions, to write a blog about Native American mental health and behavioral health um, here in Cuyahoga County as part of the Dear Cuyahoga County Executive Series, um, a letter that we were sending to the future county executive. And I said, Will, I can't write this, this blog. He said, what do you mean? Sure you can. I'm like, I'm like, yeah, I have the time. I think it's a very important topic, but Will, I don't have any data. I can't tell you what the need is in my community right now because I don't have the data. Uh, you wanna talk about invisibility and how hard it is to achieve what we want to do in our community, to achieve our American dream. I haven't the slightest clue what the mental health situation is here in Cuyahoga County for my community because we're either constantly lumped into other or excluded completely. And it's in those microaggressions, right, where that manifests, where I can give him maybe statewide data, maybe some national data, that exists. But when we're looking at urban core, so you talk about the migration of people from the south and into the cities, 
Um, from that same period we saw the black migration, 1950s and 1970s, we saw a mass migration because of the relocation program to cities like Cleveland. We now have 75% of Native Americans live in urban areas, 75%. And Cleveland does not have a single clinic to help our community health-wise and has no clue what our health situation is. So yeah, I couldn't write the, the blog, but it, the blog ended up being about exactly that. So when we talk about policy solutions and ways that we can do better to um, advocate for these communities, to right those wrongs, to start moving forward optimistically, and what are, the, what are the changes, what can we do? It really starts down to what is their visibility. Um, I, I literally have had people say, Cynthia, I had no idea Native Americans still existed until I met you. I thought they were extinct. That's what I was taught in school. And so the first barrier my community has to jump every single time is actually saying that we are still here. We have to take up space. And I think that's a, a, a thing that a lot of us are, uh, experience a lot, but literally my existence boggles people's minds. And that's where the conversation often starts. And once I'm able to get past that, and once I think this country gets past that, is when the real quick, efficient work will happen. I don't think that's the discouraging note that you know, we expected. It's not discouraging because the battle continues. Yeah. The battle continues. We are about to begin the audience Q&A. Just again, I'm Rick Jackson, senior host and producer at 89.7 WKSU Ideas from Public Media. We are joined by Cynthia Connolly with the City Club and Lake Erie Native American Council, Michael Jeans of Growth Opportunity Partners, Marcia Moreno of Amor Consulting, and Karat Singh of Midtown Cleveland. Also here, of course, Dr. Regina Williams, who gave opening remarks at the beginning of our program. We welcome questions from everyone here, City Club members, guests, students, those joining via the live stream at cityclub.org. If you'd like to tweet a question for our guest, please tweet it at the City Club. You can also text your question, that number 330-541-5794. City Club staff is here, they will try and work that into the program. May we have the first question, please? Uh, first, I wanna thank City Club and everybody else responsible for this wonderful program. It is so, so important. Um, I serve on the State Board of Education and right now there is a bill that is circulating in the General Assembly. It already passed in the Senate. It's pre presently still in the House. It's called House Bill 12. And if that bill is passed and signed, it would turn K-12 education over to the governor. The reason I raise that is because this is a governor and uh, General Assembly who have created bills that would basically say, we're not gonna teach about anybody who's different. Uh, we're not gonna teach about social justice, race. Uh, they actually wanted teachers to lose their license if they did that. So my question to you is, if that, if that happens, uh, it'll be dis there'll be no way in schools will be learning about what you've just talked about. So my question to you is, are any of you doing anything to fight that bill. When you say different, you mean the six of us up here. <laughs> All of you. Yeah. <laughs> Anyone? So uh, this has been, uh, this has been a, a, a well-discussed topic and it needs more attention. Uh, and it's not unique to Ohio. We're seeing this across the country and we're seeing a concentration of it in red states. Uh, you know, this is the risk of when we allow certain things to be set in motion and be silent, right? Uh, before this, we saw a health uh, administrator pushed out of her role here in the state of Ohio for 
offering the right health administration for Ohioans. We're, we're, we're finding ourselves in a place where the political assembly wants to uh, be the experts in everything, but there's yet a prerequisite for them to have the expertise and the criteria to be said experts. And so now this is um, showing up in education, again, across the country. Um, I spend a lot of time in political discourse, more than I ever thought I would, with politicians. I think I, I, I worry that we are entering a space where uh, the taxes we pay are not affording us the representation that they're designed and tasked to. So it becomes a part of a larger, larger conversation. I, I will uh, suggest that places like City Club become more and more important uh, when you have these kinds of inequities that become institutionalized and are driven by policy. The role of higher ed in these conversations becomes more and more important as uh, the, the role for private and public institutions uh, might be similar, their abilities to push content and information uh, for the benefit of the citizen and the individual, uh, the flexibility changes when these laws change. Uh, writing congressional leaders is one thing. I don't know that that's enough anymore. Uh, you know, I, I think there really needs to be, uh, there, there needs to be a coalition of, uh, of individuals who have access to power and who are in power and, and the demands have to be made. The, the, the challenge is really greater than what you just suggested. That's the byproduct. We need to relook at our construct. We need to relook at who's representing the people. Right now, the, 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 the data has come back that this country is largely in the center. I believe it's 70% of the country's in the center, 15 on both extremes. But we're finding our governance to be on the extremes. That's a problem. Uh, and, and we need to do something about that, which means we need more than 8%, 12% turnout when it's time to vote, right? Gerrymandering doesn't help as well, right? <laughs> Thank you for that. Mm -hmm. But we've got, to, we've, got to create a, we've got to create outcomes. We've got to create a scenario where people see the value in their vote. And, and that's what's also been diminished. So we've got a lot of work to do. What I, what, I, what I would offer to this group is help us tell that story, help us push. We're far too quiet. We're far too kind. And so the loudest and most audacious are in the extremes, but they're the ones who are heard, right? And they're the ones who are moving the needle right now. So, you know, pack up fear and put it wherever you need to put it because everything's on the line, including our kids. I do want to, I'm sorry, I do want to jump in. Um, I can't take credit for this, but um, I do know that there is a, co a coalition of groups in Cleveland who just this past week were down at the State House advocating for exactly what you're saying, multiracial curriculum in K-12 education. And I think it has to be done just that way. It has to be multiracial, it has to include all of these histories, all of these voices. Um, and I just wanna uplift that work. I know OPAL, um, Building AAPI Feminist Leadership, YLN, Freedom Block, um, a number, I think there's probably about a dozen groups of advocates who just th this past week were down at the State House advocating for um, you know, for exactly this this issue, um, and I also want to say this week, I I um, saw down in Florida. I know there was. Um, I think I just want to uplift that point that it has to be done together. It has to be done as a coalition. We can't uplift certain histories and not others. Um, I know in Florida there was a case this week where um, I think the governor there, who at the same time, um, exactly um, what you're saying, um, created made it so that. Um, are these histories could not be taught in schools also said well AAPI histories could be taught and that I think goes to um, Dr. Williams what you were speaking of in terms of the model minority myth um, 
uh, this system that has been created pits different communities against each other and creates this wedge to say, well, AAPIs, maybe that's okay to be taught um, in isolation, but our histories are not in isolation. Um, our, all of our rights have been um, advanced in solidarity with each other. The Asian American movement was hand in hand with the civil rights movement in the 60s. And so I think that just has to be uplifted, that this all has to move in solidarity together. Dr. Williams, to stay with the education point, the idea that what is being legislated works for the public schools, but those people with means take their children away from that and educate them separately. It's a product of a private school, great private school here in Ohio, Hawken Upper School. Um, I want to say that was a positive experience for me. It's how I spent a lot of hours during the day, but the real education took place at home in Garden Valley on the east side of Cleveland and in the New Joshua Missionary Baptist Church because my parents made sure of that. And we were working class. My father worked in a warehouse of the A&P grocery store and my mother had six children. She did a whole lot of work at home. But um, again, but there are always books. There's a library in the home. And so there are things that we can do in our homes, in our neighborhoods, if the institutional base is solid, if the churches are there, if the neighborhood centers are there, uh, thank goodness we have our public library system here in the city of Cleveland, the People's University. We're not into banning books yet, but that could come if we remain that. silent. And so I think we need all of those things, all of those institutions, all of those individuals working in tandem with the teachers in the public schools. And as Michael said, we need to vote in large numbers because it does matter. And those challenges that make it more difficult for people to vote, whether it's because of something that's on the record for mistakes that they made in the past, or um, if they're no longer included on the active roles of voters, we have to educate people so that they can register and become active again in this whole political process. But um, I'm actually in favor of both public and private schools teaching about the rich histories of all of the people in this country. Next question, please. Good afternoon and glad to be here and thank you for having this. Um, my name is Rita Knight Gray, I'm an archivist. Um, my question, well actually it's just an addendum to Dr. Williams and to, and I'm sorry I don't have your name. My belief is history repeats and it's been repeating every 50 years. So my belief is we should go back to the 1960s when there was the Black Panthers and other groups. And the reason why I say that is because they were the ones that would have schools and education, protection and social justice, along with health and everything else within the cities of Oakland and across the country. The other thing is Every other ethnic group in this city and across this country, they have the schools that teach their children the history of their people. So I think we should go back to that in the regards that we should have the schools because I don't believe uh, <laughs> this is not going to be voted down or removed. I think it's gonna come about and it might take uh, 10 years for the, to make a major change. But in the meantime, 
I believe that we should have your own community schools in the sense of they're not through the system, they're just something where you work with your people in your communities. If people want to come to understand other cultures and history, that should be done because rely, relying on what's going on now, I don't see a change. And in order for everyone to understand everyone, they need to learn everyone's history. And this is not happening. I'm also fighting for one book that should be in the school systems of every school in Northeast Ohio. It's called Black Americans in Cleveland, from George Peak to Carl B. Stokes. It was written by Harry Davis, and Harry Davis is a, a renowned person in Cleveland for what he fought for, which a lot of people do not know about. People don't know about George Peak either, who is also a black person who was well-renowned, but that's my question or my addendum to what's been said. Thank you. Gonna add an addendum to the addendum. Uh, so there is actually um, a, a large network in the United States of tribal colleges and universities, as well as tribal um, K through 12 institutions and preschools um, in both urban and rural areas. More uh, you see the urban ones more, particularly in the Dakotas and in the Southwest and Northwest. Not not so much here in the Great Lakes area, but um, we have those schools, and yet we still have poverty and marginalization and invisibility. And these schools are heavily attended. They're also underfunded. And it also comes with the, the other asterisk of, yeah, we have our schools and we, we can educate ourselves and, and you know, control the curriculum, but we're not letting um, you know, Congress off the hook for some of these treaty obligations that are still owed to us, for some of the, um, the other things that are negotiated in bad faith that we're still holding them to account. So there's still a lot of other work that needs to be done. And uh, just kind of, you know, again, an addendum to the addendum is, yes, we can have our own schools, but there is still so much more that we need to hold others to, uh, to account. Michael, going back to the question, the whole idea of what the Panthers are doing, the additional education. I like the idea of the each one teach one, but that should be in addition to, not in place of. I, I agree with that, Rick. And, and, I, and I appreciate you coming back to it because uh, there, there was so much to pull from the commentary. Um, the, the, the vantage point of an archive, archivist is, is a beautiful thing because there's just a chronology of fact and time uh, that continue to collide and force us to ask questions. Whenever the Black Panthers come up, rooms get quiet. People <laughs> <laughs> get a little squirmish, right? What a, uh, but the reality is the, the Panthers were formed to protect the right to vote. Right, to protect the right to vote, and, 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 and they become erased as they're infiltrated. A, a group called uh, Antifa, the anti-fascists, how do they become the enemy of the United States? They're, their whole thing is anti-fascism. And so when we get to the, the conversation of policy, Brown v. Board versus how it's actually implemented and executed in our communities and our neighborhoods. Unfortunately, there's a lot of room between the two. And it forces the question and commentary we just heard, which is then can we just have our own? Right? If, you, if we can't get the level and quality of education and investment, can we just have our own? And I think there's a very large question mark there on whether that would work. If there's disinvestment and underinvestment while we have each other, and what does that look like when we're segregated? Now, 
this isn't the seg desegregation and segregationist conversation of civil rights. This is a 2023 conversation. But I'd also say we have got an opportunity to advance this conversation from civil rights, which uh, for some reason is looked upon across the way to apply to a select few and those who opt in to a human rights conversation. And, and until it's a human rights conversation, it's always, as you put it, an other when it's convenient. These are human rights. This is American history. Uh, and we've got to own it as such. And we've got to take the accountability and change from that perspective. Can I add something Please. to that? Um, I have been, have been reflecting on what was said also about, you know, to teach all of their own. And I can't help but think of my son. Um, he's a mix. Mm -hmm. Who is he? Does he go to the whatever Latino school? Does he go to the American school? And I think there is some, you know, there, there's a challenge there if we continue, you know, kind of putting ourselves in separate boxes, because then how are we going to work together? And there is a richness and there is, there is this marvelous thing that will happen when we all come together and bring what is different from all of us into a new us. And that's what happens with us immigrants. When we are bringing who we are and we're taking the years that we have been here into becoming someone new, I'm no longer a Chilean, I'm no longer an American, I'm both. And, and I think that is the richness of it. So if we continue separating and making it like each for each of us our own thing, we're going to lose more of that humanity that is going to make us greater and greater Cleveland and the American dream and all of what this country was founded. So I'm not so sure that that would necessarily work now, I guess. Thank you. Microphone's still open. Go ahead. Thanks. Good afternoon, and thank you so much. Um, are there locations that you might have us look to where you have seen uh, the American dream advance beyond what you're describing here in Cleveland? Um, examples that you might offer us so that um, you can, we can have a further vision of what it would look like when we reach that better stage. Interesting. I, I think I can even expound upon that. We think about Cleveland or Detroit <clears throat> as a legacy city. Look at the newer cities, the Nashvilles, the Orlandos, the Charlottes, the Phoenixes. Are they doing things differently than what we did? Well, I'll jump in. Um, <laughs> as, a, um, as a community development practitioner, um, again, I work at Midtown Cleveland and not to be boastful, but I do think that um, in our planning work, we are working to advance what that vision can be. Um, I think, you know, in all of any profession, we need to acknowledge the harm that we have done. And in Cleveland, pl urban planning has certainly, um, I, I, we've already talked about destroyed communities. Um, Chester Avenue um, was cut through uh, a lot of our Eastside neighborhoods for the sake of a of a play road for the wealthy. Um, and so today we wrestle with that, right? It's a, um, one of the most dangerous streets in our, in our city and, um, and it has divided our neighborhoods, the neighborhood of Huff, from a lot of the investment that has gone on along Euclid Avenue with the Healthline um, and um, you know, jobs and investment there. Um, so our vision, at, uh, one of our, our neighborhood vision plan at Midtown is creating spaces uh, of connection, of belonging, 
and of the joyful celebration of the many cultures that identify in Midtown. And I think I see some of our partners here in the audience too. Um, one of the, um, uh, something that we're doing in practice is um, the uh, project on East 66th Street and connecting to a number of the institutions that are moving in along that corridor through the Midtown Collaboration Center, the Cleveland Foundation's new headquarters, um, uh, Assembly of, of the Arts, which is moving into the Midtown Collaboration Center too. But that investment connecting not just to be, um, you know, an ivory tower or walls put up splashed down into a neighborhood, but how can we connect that through to the adjacent neighborhood? So East 66th Street is, the goal is to bring that investment up and down to connect from Euclid Avenue to the neighborhoods that are there. And something really beautiful is that the residents that live on that street created that design. So the streetscape design that millions of dollars hopefully will go into transforming the street and connecting a lot of these major institutions, they said this is what we want to see. This is how it should be designed. Um, that collaboration center, they said this is how we want to use this space. And so it is kind of adding um, that, that type of space to give um, community members and the public access to um, the resources that are coming in here. So I think that's maybe one snapshot that we hope to see, well, we are seeing and hope to continue to see in the next few years. I want to quickly weigh in on, on that question because I think the answer is not so much. I, but I think it's efforts like this uh, you know, that we have to keep doing, right? At some point the wheels get traction and you get some mm -hmm. center mass and, and, uh, and, and something good comes out of it. But the, but the answer is, if there is a thing that is, is true beyond the notion of an American dream, that initial descriptive of it, I, I would say I find it more commonly, more frequently, um, when I'm in communities where people of different places and ethnicities can actually live their own existence and be themselves. I just find such a beauty there that it doesn't matter how much money you have, it's, it doesn't take a lot of money for everyone to get together. I've asked myself, can I decouple the complexities that I've created to get back to that place? And I don't know that that answer is yes, but there's a beauty there that's driven not by things and stuff, right? But and everybody has a vote on whatever it is they're gonna eat and bring over and drink and the conversation and it ends peacefully just like it began peacefully and maybe somebody says something dumb, but that's, what family and friends will do over time together, and that's part of community. But when you put it all together, the Sunday hour you know, of worship is still the most segregated in the country. And we still have thoroughfares that uh, get people to and through and fast poor communities uh, quick enough so that they can feel comfort about their, their transit. And so we've got a lot of work to do. I think there are moments that are temporary uh, of this across the country. I haven't seen any stick to itness that suggests that, um, let me say it this way, how long does this need to be an experiment? Oh. <laughs> That's how they couch it so that we feel better. It's been the great American experiment. We're a couple hundred years into this thing and we're still experimenting. Somebody call it and let's, <laughs> and let, let's do something that works, which I think we heard from one of the folks with a question. Dr. Williams, you opened us. Uh, I'll let you close us this way. My son lives in New York City. When we travel there, and you're on the subway, sometimes you can hear eight, nine different languages as you traverse two, three miles. Is that the American dream where we can all live peaceably, harmoniously, as if we're on a subway and we can't do anything to each other? <laughs> I think that's part of the dream. But um, getting back to what Michael said earlier about just allowing people to be themselves, whatever it is that individuals bring to the table, um, let that have a place on the table. Give that person 
first of all, a seat at the table and not require them to bring a folding chair, right? <laughs> but to give them a seat at the table and allow them to contribute whatever gift it is that they brought to share with other people and then to learn from everyone else who's there. And Michael, I wanna um, go back to something else that you said earlier about the segregation during uh, the worship hour. <laughs> probably 11 o'clock if you're Baptist in Cleveland, right? <laughs> but, um, but I see signs of hope, even within the historically black churches. Um, may I say East Mount Zion, somebody asked for an example where, where things are working. East Mount Zion is the beautiful Greenstone Church on Euclid Avenue, and uh, if you Google that, it'll say it sits on the campus of Cleveland Clinic. And I'm looking at someone who works at Cleveland Clinic, but, um, the church was there before Cleveland Clinic, you know, purchased all the land around it and all the buildings and raised the bowling alley. That particular church was built by the Euclid Avenue Christian Church in 1908. And there was no Cleveland Clinic, you know, in the same way that there is a Cleveland Clinic now. But people come from the clinic to worship in that structure that's owned by the historically black congregation and they come from all over the world because they're receiving this world-class health care at the clinic and they find that to be a place that is welcoming and peaceful and a place where they can pray and meditate and they are made to feel welcome and the pastor is a brilliant young african-american male who's a native clevelander and has led congregations all over the country so i think there there are signs of hope He's still just as black as he was when I met him, right? But uh, yeah, Rever the Reverend Dr. Brian A. Cash, I hope he listens to this particular program, but he's doing great work there. And I don't think anything is being lost in the process. So that's the, the dream that I have for what has been mine all of my life for that black church, but that it will be welcoming to people of other races and ethnicities and cultures and other nationalities. That is wonderful. Let me ask in the back, do I have time for one more question? Okay, I got a thumbs up. Go right ahead with your one last question. <clears throat> Thank you. So as I've been listening, um, a few things come to mind. One is that um, I am gathering the sense that the pursuit of the American dream has been presented as something collective, and yet we are all experiencing it in an individual way. Um, I am curious as to whether you have examples of nonprofit organizations that are helping to advance this American dream, as well as corporate. So what is the role of nonprofit versus corporate in helping to advance and perhaps provide some equalization in achieving this American dream. And I know I'm talking to entrepreneurs, I'm talking to activists, I'm talking to the, you know theologians as well as academics. So I look forward to an expansive answer. Thank you. We've got the whole panel. Marcia, I know you're drinking, but let me go to you first. Is there a nonprofit out there? And we can look at each community. It's yes. helping. Um, <clears throat> I'm going to have to say yes, and there has been more and more in the Latino community uh, that I am very happy to have seen grown and be part of some of them. So I would have to say I'm sure all of you would know Esperanza. 
Esperanza Inc. helps um, all the students, but with an emphasis on Latino students and their families successfully um, uh, complete a high school, their high school diploma, and then supports um, students with scholarships for higher education. And if there is one overall theme, uh, right, and the American dream would be that with your education, you can kind of, you know, succeed and, and you know, prosper. So I would, I would have to say that one comes first to mine. And then the Young Latino Network has been tremendously successful and grown you know, from zero to 100, I was part of the board uh, when we hired Selena, and she is a firecracker. I mean, she just takes ownership and runs with everything, and the work they are doing in voter education, civic engagement, I think has, has transformed our community and is making us be more seen, more educated, more engaged, and, and bringing the Latino voice into all the tables, and and opportunities that she has. So that's, to me, the, the first two. Excellent. I Paris, hope that answers your question. Yeah. Do you want to? Paris, give me one. Yeah, I think quickly I would say Cleveland Votes. Um, I think I see some fans of Cleveland Votes here in the audience, too. Just an amazing democracy-building uh, organization that defines that really expansively. Um, I think we even mentioned uh, the need to vote. Of course, that's so essential. But looking at how are we building democracy outside of just registering people to vote and um, getting at the vote, as important as that is, but year-round um, expressing many forms of uh, participating in our democracy. Thank you. Cynthia? Yeah, so uh, there's a, one quick example I can think of of a really great nonprofit uh, private partnership, and it's actually this national native organization called Illuminative. And as I had mentioned, one of the biggest barriers we're facing right now in our community is visibility, modern visibility. Like, so not just us being feathered and leathered in the 1800s, but being portrayed as you see me now, as your neighbor, your coworker, or your, your, your friend. And um, until two years ago, we did not have a TV show that depicted Native Americans as you would see me now. And it was Reservation Dogs and Rutherford Falls, which are streaming. And I, I know Reservation Dogs is now uh, renewed for a third season. And um, there's these, these national nonprofits that are really leading the charge at making sure that the stories are being told are modern and relevant. And they're doing incredible work. And there's a, part, a, producing, a producer partnership with Netflix, actually, that they've engaged in. So they're actually starting to produce um, native producers and writers. Um, you know, instead of hoping and praying that Native Americans go to film school and then maybe they, you know, get a, get a, a contract, they're actually producing um, actual writers and, and producers to make the, the film. And with each of these films and TV shows, it's starting to really shift that perspective of who Native people are. And the door begins to open a lot of the things that I was talking about earlier. How are we, are we at the table? Did we include the Native voice here? Um, are we including them in our data? What are their issues? And so it really starts to change that frame of mind and um, pushes our issues forward in very real, tangible ways. Thank you. Michael? Yes, the, the, the question was around corporations, the roles for philanthropy, uh, nonprofits, and, and they all have a role to play. I think corporations have more and more heard from their employees that they demand and expect more. And so corporate philanthropy has a role to play in this area. And uh, that's something that you can search by company to see what are the pillars. Education is typically one, workforce is often uh, another, workforce development and some form of economic development typically round out the top three. On the nonprofit side, I'd say, you know, there are a number of organizations. I, if you walk in and you ask, hey, I want to, you know, achieve the American dream, it might take some time. 
for you guys to get to what it is that needs to be done. Uh, but if we, if we pull that apart and say, what is it that you seek, uh, then I think you start to find the answers. Our work at Growth Ops, Growth Opportunity Partners, is to improve the quality of life for individuals who don't have the tools or opportunity to do so themselves. And so uh, I, I think we also have to look at, you know, there's a triage that's necessary in, in, in many instances. And so let's take the time and effort to get those folks the care they need. And then there's an advancement opportunity. And too often, uh, people of color uh, don't have, there's a cliff of resources when you're actually getting the traction we talked about earlier. And so if you're not down and out and you're not low income, but you've put a couple of things together to advance, there are fewer resources available for you, and I don't think it's intentional. It's in, for us, I should say. It's just that there's not a concentration of effort there. And so as you think about uh, that question you asked, continue to press us on it, because we have to connect the dots across a continuum that serves people from triage to prosperity, and prosperity perhaps being redefined from things to how we care for each other. Lastly, I'll say I was in Nevada a couple of weeks ago, and a Native gentleman came in. Uh, he was invited to speak to the group, and, and among the many things he said that stood out, his exit uh, commentary to us was to respect the land that we were on, to respect each other, and to respect ourselves. And I thought, you know, all of my meetings should start that way, right? Uh, and I will say that there was an instance where that wasn't upheld, and I felt that we had disrespected the land. We disrespected each other, and in doing so, we disrespected ourselves. So uh, to the extent there's integrity in this work and, and, and getting people the tools that they need to prosper in a very genuine way, uh, that, that I think that's how we're gonna start to advance. Thank you, and we will leave it there on that hopeful note. Thank you, Dr. Williams, Cynthia Connolly, Michael Jeans, Marcia Moreno, and Kara Sang for joining us today. <clears throat> Today's forum is presented in partnership with the Cleveland Orchestra's 2023 Mandel Opera and Humanities Festival. The City Club would like to extend its gratitude to each of these organizations for supporting collaboration on these consequential, con consequential con <laughs> conversations. I should close the way I opened, right? <laughs> City Club would also like to thank 89.7 WKSU IdeaStream for their broadcast and production support in today's forum. Up next for the City Club on Wednesday, May 24th, speakers from the WNBA, the NCAA, the Cleveland Cavaliers, and Cleveland State University women's basketball discussing the evolution and future of women's basketball in Cleveland. You can learn more about these and other forums at cityclub.org. That brings us to the end of today's forum. Thank you once again to each of our guests. Thank you, members and friends of the City Club. I'm Rick Jackson. This forum is now adjourned.